thanks. Uh, thanks, Jim. Thanks for your service today. And thanks for everyone for being here. Um, th this is a very exciting day because uh, somebody who I admire the most in uh, my recovery community has agreed to come speak to us today. Um, he's a recovering alcoholic with uh, long-term sobriety, uh, but he's also a very respected uh, therapist at a center called Seeking Integrity um, and specializes in something I've mentioned before called chemsex, which is fused uh, substance use with sexual acting out. Um, he's a, a respected speaker. Um, he speaks internationally um, all through the United States, Canada, Europe. Um, and he's also an author, and David is way too modest, so I will do the shameless plug, uh, Lust, Men, and Meth is the book. I read it about a year ago, and I'm fortunate enough to have an autographed copy. And while it's described as a gay man's guide to sex and recovery, about 70% of it is so applicable to anybody in recovery and David goes into a lot about uh, sexual templates and how that's formed, um, neuroplasticity and how that gets fused with drug use. And then the whole part three is restoring your life, the recovery process, healing old wounds, embracing feelings, and seven essential tools for strong recovery. So I certainly got a lot out of it, even as a straight person. Um, I know that the book has just been translated into German, and David is off to Europe for a book signing and some more speaking engagements. So I'm thrilled that he's willing to take some time out of his Saturday to be with us. We we talked about kind of how to make the most out of David's time, and what we came up with was about 10 or 15 minutes of David's personal story of recovery, um, then maybe about 30 minutes, just David kind of educating us on, on what chemsex is. And then we'll open the room up for questions, comments, shares. And uh, Jim has been kind enough to keep the room open so we can go uh, over, over an hour if necessary. So I think the, those are all the housekeeping issues. And with that, I will turn it over to somebody I am proud to consider a friend, David Fawcett. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, and thank you, everybody. It's a real privilege to be here. I've heard about this meeting from Charlie for quite a while, so I'm really uh, excited to be here, actually. So and I appreciate the invitation. So uh, my name is David. I'm an alcoholic. Um, and I have been, uh, just turned out the number, has been in recovery since May 25th, 1979, which is 44 years. Um, and so I got in sober in my 20s. You can do the math. Um, and it's been a quite quite a journey uh, for for me, uh, and I'll, I do want to talk just briefly about that journey. Um, I started out as a as a young closeted gay kid in in the Midwest part of the United States, very conservative, uh, from an alcoholic family on both sides. So it's kind of genetically set up. Uh, in fact, we had one I had one aunt, my father's sister, who appeared not to have alcoholism and. She died of cirrhosis. She was just very good at hiding it better than the rest of us. So I was really kind of uh, enculturated in it um, and uh, was really suppressed. Uh, I had a lot of shame about who I was. And it just really, my drinking, um, as opposed to the guys I work with today, which is more stimulant use to kind of intensify things, I just wanted to numb. My, my intention was to just disconnect from feelings and not feel anything. Because when I felt anything, it was really uh, centered around shame and feeling uh, pretty lousy about myself. 
So um, when I was able to, after college, I, I escaped I escaped to New York City, uh, thinking just the kind of a geographical cure would help me. And um, I just got worse in my alcoholism. For three years, I really bottomed out um, in the city, trying to find myself. And uh, it just really kind of crushed me, actually. And I ended up at home alone, uh, drinking. Um, I worked. That was my denial. I never missed a day of work. That's what I told myself. Of course, I, was, I had my head down on the desk for most of the day, but I never missed the day. But I, I um, would come home and drink. And so I was a solitary drinker. Uh, at the end, a little bit of marijuana here and there, um, and realizing I had a problem, but all these uh, issues were intervening with me. I, I tried bargaining with different things. I became a vegan. I got a cat. I filled up my time with a master's degree. I just, but nothing interfered with my drinking until I just finally bottomed out. Um, my brother-in-law and sister were both in AA, so I knew about AA, and I knew it was so good, you know, for for you poor people, <laughs> which is my attitude. But um, I was in a lot of denial about it when I finally realized I was out of control, and that happened, by the way, when I was passed out. I lived in a, I didn't have much money. I was working kind of an hourly rate in New York City and lived in a basically a tenement up near Columbia where I was studying. And um, the, I woke up one morning and there was water in the hallway. I didn't know what was going on and walked outside and looked up at the building and the, all the windows were broken. There was charred black. You know, we had a fire, a major fire in the building, which I had been passed out through uh, and, you know, very easily could have died. So that was kind of the, the biggest wake up call of many uh, so I started going to meetings and um, I, I was trying to find the right meeting. I had this perception of myself as a, a sort of high, high bottom drunk. Uh, so I started going to the Upper East Side meetings, kind of the Tony um, meetings where I thought I might fit in better, could not get sobriety and ended up going to a meeting near where, where I lived. And in New York City, by the way, at this time, the mental health, you know, the mental asylums had been deinstitutionalized. So everybody had been released and all the A meetings in New York City were full of homeless people and mentally ill people. And they were really, um, it was a colorful meeting, let me put it that way. Uh, and I, that's where I got sober. I got sober with those people and those people. And, and I realized, my God, you know, that's kind of who I was. That's where I was. That's as crazy as I was. And I didn't realize that till really my first anniversary, I kind of looked around and said, I really needed these people. And they, they were my friends. They were my sober buddies that I said, I still have a couple of contact with a couple of them to this day. So, so I got into AA, I got into finally went down to the Greenwich Village meeting, started dealing with being a gay man and and was really um brought brought to life by those guys i must say my life was saved i i learned i had a lot of internal issues you know feeling unworthy feeling unlovable feeling like damaged goods and all that stuff that i think most of us probably carry around deep in our core and a lot of that had to be redone and i, I learned it from those guys i was kind of loved back to to health if you will i, I learned how to surrender to this disease i learned different coping strategies, how to deal with triggers. I learned the power of connection. And I, that's, I think, more in the research-wise, even now we realize that there's that wonderful Johan Hari TED Talk, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. And that's exactly what I found. I found a place where I belonged. And that was another big missing chunk. So for me, it was a, a wonderful, I had about three years of, of glorious uh, connection and healing um, and then in 1982, if you remember the date, uh, in New York City, 1982, we started, uh, friends of mine went to the hospital and, and died in about two days. And another got sick, and, and that was this weird kind of pneumonia. And there was this thing hitting the gay community called uh, HIV. It wasn't called that at that point, but it was the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. And 
Uh, I was in the heart of it, uh, in a community that was high risk. And so over the next couple of years, uh, it really turned very dark. Uh, most of my four out of five people in my home group died uh, in that time. So my whole my whole support community got kind of wiped out. And my I never lost my sobriety, but uh, it was it was terrible uh, in those days back before. There was no treatment. There was no services. No, there was terror, kind of like there was a little bit of the pandemic where nobody knew quite in the beginning how this is translated. And, and so we were living in fear and uh, people were getting um coming back to you know cat scratch could with with uh mac could could cause blindness so we, you saw these guys who were blind who were uh they were in, had wasting syndrome they would they had dementia uh just it was it was a horrible time and people died people's families wouldn't claim the bodies uh mortuaries wouldn't process the bodies you know it's just it was really a nightmare and um after enough of hospital sitting and a funerals and enough kind of bleak death um i kind of escaped uh with my partner at the time to florida uh temporarily and i'm still in florida um but um it, it just felt better and felt good and um at that point um we just were kind of trying to relocate in any place we could in 1988 we on a whim we got tested and we found out we were both positive ourselves and in 1988 it was still relatively much a, a death sentence <clears throat> and so my sobriety kind of got hijacked i never lost it but boy, for the next 10 years, next decade, it was just survival mode with, with brain infections and GI infections and um, uh, all kinds of uh, anemia from medications that nearly killed me. And just so it, it was a struggle. Um, and ultimately, that led to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in 1994, which almost that was um, almost did it, but it didn't. Um, and in 1995, 96, new medications came out and suddenly everything changed and I kind of had survived to this point and something happened to me and I, I talked to my clients about it. Uh, there is a thing in research based called post-traumatic growth, which doesn't happen to everybody, but it, this thing where if we can, if we survive uh, traumas that we go through, sometimes, you know, we can take that and kind of make use of that near, near miss. And that happened to me. I, I sort of really was grateful to be alive and really grateful to, um, be able to do something for so much suffering I'd seen. And, and I went back to school, it was my early 40s to that point, and, and became a therapist uh, over the next couple of years. So then I, I opened up a private practice around 1998 or so. And, and that was my, um, my, my service work and my employment at that point. And my work continued, you know, and my, and my purpose uh, with, with service was really strong at that point. I, I was very committed and active in, in AA meetings in my hometown. Uh, and most of the guys I, in my practice, my caseload were gay men with addiction issues. And uh, around 1998, when I opened almost from the beginning, I was getting guys coming in complaining of sex, sexual problems, sexual dysfunction. And with a little history, we found that, yeah, there was sexual dysfunction, but it was mostly related to their use of methamphetamine, uh, which kind of had hijacked their system. And, and I didn't know much about meth, frankly. I'm, I'm a kind of a garden variety alcoholic from that point of view. But uh, so I started looking for research. There was nothing out there. Um, there was literally nothing. And so uh, I was kind of on my own in terms of what to do with these guys. And I kind of cobbled together uh, a protocol over the next 10 years and ultimately wrote the book that Charlie was kind enough to mention. Um, but so let me kind of pivot um, to, to the chemsex, if you will, because that really is what kind of took over at that point. Um, so chemsex, the, the word as the word describes, is this kind of simultaneous use of 
drugs and uh, sexual behavior. And it, and it can be any drug and any sexual behavior. So it, most often these days we see amphetamines with sex and porn, um, but it can be cannabis. It can be alcohol. It can be uh, other drugs I'll talk about in a minute that go with chemsex. It, uh, it could even be opioids. Um, so almost whatever, we can kind of attach these things to our sexual behavior. Um, and that can be, by the way, it's all genders, all all sexual orientations. So men, women, I think one of the the great unfortunate um, labeling issues has been that chemsex is really thought of as a gay issue, and it's not. Uh, actually, the term chemsex itself, um, uh, the, a friend of mine who died last year named David Stewart, who worked at 5016 Street Clinic in, in uh, Soho in London, actually coined the term. Um, and he really meant it to be, uh, he worked with gay men as I did, who were had really survived the same HIV crisis that I had. So the, the whole experience, not just of the addiction part, but of this kind of looming shadow of the AIDS crisis over the community, um, internalized homophobia, kind of shame, all, all the kind of unique aspects um, that he wanted to call chemsex. But, but I, and we use that term today for, for gay men who mix sex and drugs, but it's certainly um, gay men do not have the monopoly on, on that kind of behavior. Uh, so the drugs that we see are slightly different. We have methamphetamine as the star of the show, uh, still really, really high powered drug, probably the most powerful drug on earth, uh, really um, hijacks the brain in a way that nothing else does. Um, in, in the UK, we see methadrone also, which is another stimulant. Thank God we don't have this in the United States, but it just kind of adds adds to the, uh, the, to the fun. Um, I like to mention methadrone because the slang name is Meow Meow, which some of you might have heard, but I just like to say that. Um, GHB is another drug that goes with the gamma hydroxybutyrate, which is a, a, a drug that is kind of more of a sedative hypnotic. It's, it's a close cousin of the drug uh, called rohypnol, which is a, the date rape drug. And uh, we see that, um, so guys use it to kind of mellow out the intensity of the meth high. So they, they try to get this perfect mix of G. G is liquid. And so it's really, really easy to overdose because the, the difference between um, a nice high and uh, stopping your respiratory system is very little. And guys do it in, you know, dark bathhouse corners or on the dance floor or whatever. And people drop into what's called the G hole, uh, which is they basically will stop breathing. And uh, actually, again, in the UK, they have beautiful uh, kind of first aid uh, awareness courses for that, for the gay community of what to do if somebody drops into the G hole. Right? And we don't have that awareness here in the States. And a lot of guys, their friends will take them back and put them to bed like you would somebody who's drunk. Um, the problem with G, they'll stop breathing and a lot of people die from that. And a lot of people are being sexually assaulted, by the way. Um, the Terence Higgins Trust in the UK and Cambridge studied one out of four people who use GHB have been sexually assaulted. Uh, and often and it's even more perverse live stream and so on. Um, we have a, a good friend uh, and, and former client here in the States who that just happened to in Palm Springs. So it still happens. It happens to to smart people. And uh, and a lot of times it's not reported because of the shame involved. It's just people, There's again, it just ties into that internalized well of shame that, that guys have. Uh, so that's GHB. Um, I mentioned meth, methadrone, MDMA, ecstasy um, is, is a big popular one. Cocaine, of course, ketamine, uh, which is um, a kind of 
been, have found a new life uh, as an antidepressant of last resort, uh, which is, has been kind of a miracle drug to reverse people who are suicidal that don't respond to other medications. But ketamine is used as part of the party um, arsenal. Um, and then uh, poppers, uh, a lot of gay guys use poppers, amyl and butyl nitrates, which are old cardiac medications, uh, has the name because you could pop off the top, like if you have an angina, similar to um, nitroglycerin. And, and so they, uh, what it does is just opens up all your blood vessels and just pops them open. It's a big head rush. Uh, a lot of guys use it uh, as part of their sexual uh, drug. So you have all these going on plus other synthetics and all these things mix mix and match in, in a way that's really um, quite, quite destructive. Um, so what happens with these drugs? And with meth particularly, and meth, by the way, releases about 1,300 times more dopamine than we would have at baseline just walking around dopamine. Dopamine, by the way, is part of our built-in kind of what they call reward circuitry in the brain, which basically has over thousands of years given human beings little feel-good feelings uh, and preoccupation. I mean, we don't, let's do that again uh, for things that are pro-social or things that help us survive, things that help us get our genes into the next generation. So to, um, cooperating as a tribe, right? Being able to cooperate and collaborate and and laugh and have good food and um, fall in love. And, and most of all, the most dopamine we get from anything uh, short of addiction is an orgasm. And that makes sense, right? Because we want to have the orgasm repeats it and we want to be preoccupied, we can do that again. Um, but along comes these drugs that, that mimic that system. They actually block the same receptors for um, dopamine in the brain and they just kind of hijack it. So, you know, cocaine will be about four or five times that rate of, of uh, an orgasm. The normal rate, methamphetamine is 13 to 14 times. So it's just this really big dump of dopamine in the system that kind of hijacks nothing. A regular orgasm without the drug is like uninteresting and boring compared to the high, that shiny object. And so very quickly, it kind of rewires people's brains in, in a way that there's really destructive. Um, and when we talk about fusion and chemsex really is fusion. So people ask me sometimes, uh, well, if these are non-alcoholics or non-addicts, if I have a, a drink of wine with my wife before we have sex, is that chemsex? No, in my mind, it's not. Uh, I'm talking about the kind of the ritualized use of drugs and sex went so much to the point where they become one one set of behaviors. And that's exactly what the brain does with chemsex. With, because of neuroplasticity in the brain's ability to adapt, these drugs become merged and one becomes the other. And so uh, people will see a sexy person on the street and get a drug craving, or they'll uh, think about a drug and want to have sex right away. The, the two become like indistinguishable. And the big kind of tragedy about chemsex and recovery is that guys, you know, bottom out with methamphetamine, which is a terrible drug. Uh, and so they, they get into recovery from that, but methamphetamine has become so attached to their sex lives, their sex life basically disappears. And these are the guys that first came into my practice uh, have, with sexual dysfunctions. Like, I don't know why I can't get aroused uh, at all. I'm not even attracted to anybody anymore because I'm sober and all that without being really, really high on, on the drugs, their sexual arousal was gone. And so my work as a therapist in the recovery part of chemsex is really to help people deal with 
not only that inner stuff, because all the shame and all the internalized homophobia and all those issues. And by the way, I'm working a lot with straight guys now, uh, equally amounts of shame, just over different things, right? Um, but but same same behavior, same thoughts, no difference at all. But but as a sex therapist, what I do is try to help people re-engage some uh, sexual behavior in a healthy way. And this is the problem with chemsex. And it's one that really is not yet understood in the professional community, at least here in the States, there has to be two recovery strategies with chemsex, right? If you have to take care of the drugs and you take care of the sex. And, and the drug at that point has to be an abstinence model. You, there's you know, harm reduction and that, that ship sailed you know, years ago, usually for these guys. And so um, we have to stop. We just have to stop all the drugs. And a lot of times that's a fight because we'll say, well, I like, I'm an amphetamine addict. I don't even uh, like the, the feeling of being drunk. Why can't I have alcohol? You know, you know, why can't I have a beer with my friends at the bar and then uh, and stay away from everything else? Well, the reason in my mind, what I tell them is that alcohol disinhibits. And I've had a lot of clients who would have that bar with drink with their friends. And suddenly they're thinking about how, where can I get high again? Because it just it just introduces that um, that thought pattern. Uh, but the problem with with meth and chemsex in general is that when they try to, in sobriety, try to re-engage in sex, and oftentimes for months, the arousal is just gone. But when it does come back, that's often a relapse point uh, because people really don't know how to handle the sexual feelings. So my, my point here is that we need two recovery strategies. One is abstinent, but we don't want to be abstinent from sex. So we don't want to be abstinent, obviously, from sex, right? So we have to figure out how to invite sex back into our lives. And for many guys, many of the gay guys I worked with, that's like a second coming out. They're dealing with all this stuff that had never been dealt with without drugs before. Most people started out their sexual experimentation back in adolescence by getting drunk and high all the time. So dealing with sex sober, uh, I think probably most of us can identify with the, that. It's it's a whole different experience. And uh, all those fears and body issues and self-doubt and all that performance stuff, all that stuff comes right to the fore. And that's that's kind of what we have to start dealing with. But um, I found that the, the sex addiction recovery rooms are really helpful because they have tools about dealing with fantasy and uh, tailoring and individualizing. So so these are all really triggering, triggering issues. The other thing I wanted to mention about meth that makes it a particularly dangerous um, drug, I think, is that um, it's it does some destructive things that other drugs don't do. Um, when it's working up there in the brain, it will flush all the dopamine out of the system. Uh, and when we don't have dopamine in our system, a couple of things happen. We get really, really depressed. Uh, we get really impulsive. We have no impulse control. Uh, we get really hopeless. And, and this, in my opinion, is what, what makes methamphetamine recovery so complicated because the brain of a meth addict is in that state for a good three or four months in early recovery. And what that means is that they're struggling with probably the most intense cravings of any substance on earth uh, on a daily basis, on a minute by minute basis sometimes, they're not feeling any better. They're still feeling really depressed. They're still feeling really hopeless. And, and their frontal cortex, which is the, the impulse control in the adult in the room is offline. So it's like all go, go, go messages with, with no breaks. And I think that's that explains, in my opinion, the, the relapse rate of meth users, which by the way, evens out after some months in recovery. It, meth is no different than alcohol in terms of recovery rates. But if people can survive that early phase, that's, that's the key. Um, and so that's the struggle that a lot of these guys have. Um, by the way, that depression thing, uh, you know, meth, meth runs are usually four or five days. 
Uh, and people who get so preoccupied, they'll forget to eat, they'll forget to drink, they'll have kidney issues because they, they don't drink water. They certainly don't take their HIV meds if they're and about half of the people that engage in chem sex will become HIV positive. And so it's a big complicated problem. But but you can see that um, when they start uh, maybe partying on Thursday, they party hard on Friday and Saturday and start putting in the brakes on Sunday and Monday, they may try to crawl back into their lives somehow, but Tuesdays and, and the slang world is known as Suicide Tuesdays. And it's known as Suicide Tuesdays because um, the brain is just, they're, they're in that suicidal mode where they just can't recover uh, from it. And so they have to kind of get through that as well. So it's a really, they're really fighting a lot of really extreme mood swings uh, and impulse control issues and so on. The other thing that happens with meth uh, and it happens with a lot of addiction where the brain tries to adapt to all this dopamine coming at it. And it'll the brain will start to um, eliminate some of the dopamine receptors. So there's not as much dopamine sloshing around, uh, which is something called dopamine downregulation. But and th that recovers, right? We that's the brain will regenerate those once we kind of change, once we get into recovery. And there may be a little lag. Um, but with meth, you get that, but you get also the fact that meth is neurotoxic, which means when, when this meth molecule blocks that dopamine receptor for eight or nine or 10 hours, which is why the meth high is so long, when it rolls away, that receptor is basically dead. Uh, and so you're, you're killing off your, your dopamine receptors even faster. So that contributes to depression and so on. We know that, by the way, as I said, the good news is that those grow, they regenerate, they grow back. Uh, with meth users, we know from uh, good research out of our federal government that it takes up to 24 months for those to get back. So it's 24 months and probably the first 12 of that is much like having really bad ADHD. I've had guys who couldn't read a book. I would have clients ask them to go to a meeting and you know the 12 steps and 12 traditions are on the, on the wall. And it's all like gibberish. They can't put two words together because their brain is just kind of um, not not functioning properly. So so that's chemsex really. Can it, can people recover? Yes. You know, I'm, I did a documentary called Crystal City uh, about eight guys in meth recovery in New York City, uh, which won a lot of awards actually. Um, but I will say caution because there's a guy that is using in, in the video, so there's a triggering alert, triggering element to it. But but one of the guys in there was in this state of real, real depression and and what we call anhedonia, this guy inability to experience pleasure in the beginning of his recovery. And in the on film, he was saying, well, you know, I can't get sober from meth. And I think that anybody that says they're sober from meth is just lying because, because it's impossible. And he said, and if they say they're sober from meth, they obviously didn't know how to use meth in the first place. So they, they, the idea of recovery just didn't make sense to him. Um, so recovery is a long process. It's a fragile process, like it is for all of us. But I just, I think looking back, um, I guess I found such joy in connecting with people that sounded like me and felt like me and that I could identify with that. that that's what I remember these many years later is the joy of that connection. I know I struggled some, but I don't think I struggle as much as I see a lot of these chemsex guys struggling. Um, so uh, that led basically to my work. I, by the way, I, I'll mention one of the recovery thing. Um, I don't want to talk too long. Um, I, I've had two major relationships in my life. I'm still I'm married now to a, a man. I've been about 15 years. Um, my first partner was also in recovery. Um, and 
he passed away of HIV complications in 2004. Now that's well after people should be dying of HIV stuff. But um, this, and so my point here is to say that it still happens and he had medication issues. Uh, and so that that was a real change in my life. When I was 50 years old, I was, I was widowed basically. Um, and I poured my energy into writing down what I'd learned from working with these chemsec clients. And that was really the birth of my book, Lust, Men, and Meth, which um, no one would publish because I was an, an unknown author writing about gay men and addiction. Like, that's a winner combination. Nobody would touch that with a 10-foot pole. So I, I self-published. And uh, I am pleased to say the book is still going strong uh, around the world. I get emails from people in obscure places saying it's really helped. And I think what what the core of that book is, first of all, we're talking about it. It's really hard to find good information about chemsex. But the second thing is I really went into some detail about um, some of the brain science that goes on. And I did that intentionally because so many uh, chemsex users, so many addicts, I think in general, just have, they come to the table with these beliefs, these core negative core beliefs of I'm damaged goods, I'm unworthy, I'm unlovable. You know, if you, if you really knew what was going on in here, you would run so far the other way, all that that stuff, right? That that addicts, gay, straight, male, female have. Um, but with meth, it all got focused on their fact that I'm a meth addict, I am damaged goods. And and I wanted to point out that a lot of the, the, the symptoms of meth recovery are because of the brain and what meth does to the brain and they can be changed. And so it, it really kind of destigmatized the, the process in my mind. And I wanted to really create less shame for folks. So um, fast forward, um, the book has been translated to German. As Charlie said, I'll be in Berlin, Munich, and Vienna, poor me, uh, in May to, to a, a book signing thing. Um, I, I consult in Norway and Amsterdam. I'm, I'm all over the place. Europe is where it's at right now with chemsex. I really need to be in Europe. Uh, the, all the research is happening there. We're, I'm part of the formation of a chemsex center of excellence in Barcelona. So, I mean, that's where the the heart of this work is right now. Um, but fortunately, we have Zoom and uh, we have airplanes and all, all kinds of other things, so we can all stay connected. But but my point here is that there's really good work going on with chemsex. There's huge awareness about it, and we know what to do. We know how to treat it. We're getting better at treating it. There are some medications now that help with the cravings. Um, and so I feel progress in that regard. And, and then to just close up with me, I, I I can't imagine how I'm alive. I can't imagine uh, why I was here, except I go back to that post-traumatic growth thing where um, I I was given a second life, basically a gift after cancer. And, and I, you, there's no cure for HIV, but it's controlled with me. And and so um, purpose and service, that is what, that's what I live for, honestly. And so I'm, I'm always designing programs, creating things and, and working on my recovery. I do a lot of service work in this regard. And I just, um, I've never lost my gratitude and I'm, I'm I'm grateful for that as well. And and the connection, I need the connection still. I've never, I go to meetings, I've never forgotten I'm an addict. Um, I've had to change meetings a little bit because um, I now have so many clients in the town where I live, which is a relatively small town. Uh, I can't go anywhere without seeing former clients. And so, and that includes my AA meetings. And finally it got so uncomfortable. Uh, I just couldn't really share, especially when my partner was dying. Um, so I found other meetings, uh, and I've been more creative, but so I've had to shift some of my, my home groups, which I, I was made me sad, but it was necessary and, and I'm still very actively involved. So, 
I think with that, I will stop and say, again, I'm so grateful to be here and to be able to share a little bit of the message and spread the chemsex message. And, uh, and thank you all. Appreciate it.